Hello and welcome to the Mangal Media Show. I am Mangal Media Editor-in-Chief Efe Levant. To learn more about us and follow the articles discussed on the show, please visit our website www.mangalmedia.net. Mangal Media is supported entirely by reader donations. If you like our content and would like to see more of it, please check out our pledge options from our Patreon site. Listeners who like fiction can also buy our illustrated short story, Guide to Every City, written by myself and illustrated by Ala Al-Hasud. Guide to Every City is a guide for a fictional city inhabited by insects, the three different species of insect in every city, Hopsters, sloggers, and buzzies live segregated lives on their isolated neighborhoods. The book not only presents a commentary on social divisions within urban life, it also satirizes contemporary travel writing. The fictional author of the guide, Steve McCracker, is a thoroughly unrelatable hipster who genuinely believes that the rest of the world did not exist until he discovered it for some over-designed travel magazine. You will laugh, you will cringe, in the words of Steve, you will never be the same again. Today's guest is Muhammad Al-Sudairi, a researcher in history and political science. We will be talking about his recent article in Third World Quarterly, Arab Encounters with Maoist China, Transnational Journeys, Diasporic Lives and Intellectual Discourses. Hello, I am with Mohammed Al Sudairi. Uh, we are going to talk about his research with a uh, specific uh, focus on the p- paper he's published last year in the uh, Third World Quarterly called Arab Encounters with Maoist China Transna- uh, Transnational Journeys, Diasporic Lives, and Intellectual Discourses. Hello, Mohammed, how are you? Hello, Afe. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself before we get started. Uh, sure. Uh, so I am currently the head of uh, the Asian Studies Unit at the King Faisal Center uh, for Research and Islamic Studies in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I am also a postdoctoral fellow at the Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. Um, I got my PhD from the University of Hong Kong in comparative politics. Um, You know, I've also sort of had uh, my own journey across many different places in pursuit of my education in Beijing and London, uh, as well as Doha, to put it uh, simply. Uh, My research is uh, kind of eclectic and constantly evolving, but I kind of try to look at some of the subterranean non-state aspects of interactions between East and West Asia. So um, I look a lot at uh, sort of circulations of uh, religious linkages, um, also sort of the leftist connectivities between the two regions. Um, And I look at it both from sort of revolutionary and even counter-revolutionary perspectives. So one project that I'm now working on, for example, looks at um, Saudi Arabia's involvement in East Asia's Cold War. Uh, So that's also sort of taking me in very interesting directions, to put Mm -hmm. it simply. I was reading this paper, and one of the first things that I thought personally was like, okay, you're writing basically about um, Arab communists and Arab leftists who have been kind of 
who have visited China and a lot of the times their uh, their own country's Communist Party have been instrumental in these people like visiting China. And I have thought about, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting to do something similar with like Turkish people who might have gone there? But it was kind of like really, really difficult to find any Turkish people who's been to China after the communist revolution as kind of supported by any kind of communist party in Turkey. Is this uh, is this more of like a topic that's discussed within the Arab world? Is there like, uh, are those people who have gone to China something that is known about? Or is this something that you've discovered entirely by yourself? There is, as far as I know, sort of dispersed writings on these different figures, uh, but nothing that sort of weaves together their overall story. So, for example, people like um, the Marxist Iraqi intellectual that I talk about, Hadil Alawi, his works are very well known across the Arab world, including his particular contributions on China. Uh, some people focus on, for example, Hanamina's uh, novels, and particularly his trilogy that was based on his own life in China. But what was particularly interesting that a lot of the uh, Arabic language writings on the experiences of these people have often come from Chinese Arabists, less so from Arabs themselves. Um, but yeah, I, I, what I've tried to do essentially in this paper is bring together a lot of the material that I've collected over the course of a decade um, and it's not just sort of textual material, but also sort of my own, the insights I derived from people that I had met when I was living in Beijing, who were part of that generation of people who came in the late 60s, 70s, and then just settled indefinitely in China. Um, and those people had given me like a lot of, um, were very kind enough and generous enough to share with me their stories and just the experiences of that community, which in a lot of instances would not have been effectively communicated through any text, right? The internal politics, the divisions, the, uh, the ambience that they lived through, particularly during the late Maoist era and into like sort of the opening era of the 1980s and 1990s. So Sorry. there's there is also an element of kind of uh, oral history in your research then? A bit, or at least the oral history sort of, um, helped guide my thinking because I, I did not necessarily use the material no. based on those interviews and in sort of writing the text because you know when I when I had those conversations I did not necessarily have at the time the intention of writing this paper um, but they sort of gave me a lot of the signposts as to where to look what were the figures to consider right I mean, I do thank one of them um, in, in the text, Abdul Karim al-Jadi, who is, uh, I mean, I consider him something like a, an uncle figure or a father figure, <laughs> who is uh, one of that early generation of Palestinians who came and settled in Beijing and opened a series of businesses from the beginning of the reform and opening up. Um, you know, I spent many nights just, you know, listening to his stories about the internal chicaneries and infighting in the Arab community. And it's very interesting politics. It must be also interesting to be an Arab in China doing research about other Arabs in China who were there before you. So was there like an element of like, because 
these people went there because they had like some kind of an interest in China. Like, uh, I mean, in the conversation, we will, I think, reveal the fact that they saw China as some kind of like an alternative to like Western imperialism as, and all, even after the, um, uh, the great proletarian cultural revolution, a lot of them found that they've created an ideology which agreed with the uh, proletarian revolutions, like the, the, um, the cultural revolutions ideology that, you know, Russia was also part of this Western imperialist uh, network, whatever. And they have seen China as kind of like a liberatory alternative to all of that. And did you feel like, how did you place yourself in this tradition of considering China to be a potential savior for the Arab world? I think um, I would say that when I first came to China, I sort of subscribed to many elements or uh, sort of aspects of that view. And I think that was really a result of the fact that I came of age um, around the time when the US invaded Iraq. Uh, and I was also very much heavily impacted by the Lebanon war in 2006 and sort of Hezbollah's effective resistance for more than a month. Um, so in some ways, you know, I, at least for the, that, that particular decade, I was sort of engrossed with the idea of how can the region salvage itself and how can it really muster an effective resistance to, you know, American aggression and American involvement. Uh, so, you know, I, I remember when I was in my teen years, I would watch uh, the Iraqi resistance channel that was broadcasting from Syria at the time. Oh, my, it's good that my parents didn't know what I was doing at the time. <laughs> but um, so when I went to China, I already came with a lot of intellectual baggage about sort of the place of the region in the world and um, sort of the, the, the centrality of the U.S. as a source of problems and oppression and persecution. So in, in many ways that sort of complicated and undermined my own intellectual journey in China, because in many ways I wasn't necessarily engaging with Chinese realities and the ground as such, and trying to take China on its own terms, but I was sort of having a conversation in, uh, with sort of Chinese history, Chinese society, politics, et cetera, with reference or continuous reference to the US and the problems in our region. And I think this is why when I was writing this paper, um, particularly when reading the intellectual works of you know, the Arab visitors and foreign experts who stayed in China for extended periods of time, a lot of what they wrote resonated with me and made a lot of sense. Right. These were people who were not necessarily talking about China as such. They were talking about a fictional stand in China uh, while primarily thinking about the Arab world and its problems. A lot of what you said about, because we're, I guess, from the same generation, a lot of what you said about um, considering China some kind of an alternative in, in your teens kind of resonates with me as well. That's why I had the impression that, um, you know, we just kind of fall into this interest in China because we consider it as an alternative and then we get disappointed by it and 
we just kind of move on in a lot of ways. And this is something we talked about before also, but there is like a new generation of people who consider China and communism and Russia as like an alternative to Western domination right now. So perhaps they will go through the same journey as we did uh, with this ideology. Yeah, I, I think it's it's quite likely. I mean, people have the different intellectual journeys and whatnot, but I mean, what we went through is not unique either because um, if you look at, for example, the, uh, the works of people who could be described as fellow travelers, right? Of sort of the Bolshevik and later Soviet uh, models, quote unquote, or even the Chinese models throughout the 20th century, a lot of these intellectuals uh, went through these cycles of romanticizing the other and get, then getting disillusioned because the realities did not necessarily live up to their expectations. Um, so it's, it's a given. Of course, you know, now um, the issue primarily is that you have a lot of people who don't have as many opportunities as in the past to really go and engage with China on the ground. I mean, of course, COVID complicates that, but there's also sort of, um, I think, greater restrictions that are manifesting themselves in the Chinese context that makes it a lot more difficult for outsiders to really engage with wider society, to build links with academics and peers and whatnot. I mean. This is at least my experience when I compare sort of um, the situation in, say, Beijing, which is a relatively liberal uh, city and you can engage with a lot of different groups and figures who are very interesting 10 years ago and the situation over the last few years, right, where people are a lot less forthcoming in what they want to tell you. Um, and there is clearly a desire on the part of the Chinese state to redouble its efforts to provide you with particular narratives and images about itself and how it manages society, right? Because they always talk about, you know, the need to uh, fight the sort of the, the discourse war, right? Uh, and I think people are very susceptible to that and they don't really have any opportunities or as many opportunities as in the past to really uh, develop their own subjective experiences of the realities on the ground. Let's kind of get into the specifics of the paper. Um, there is quite a, a colorful cast of characters that you kind of bring up in the paper. Perhaps you would like to maybe run us through some of your favorite ones? Uh, well, so I think the, the paper uh, touches on a large group of Arab novelists, revolutionaries, as well as intellectuals. I primarily focus on two individuals uh, in terms of the foreign experts. Uh, Salama Ubaid, who was uh, sort of a famous uh, Arab author, poet, uh, and someone who really made major contributions to the study of Arabic in China, including sort of the, the development of the first authorized Chinese Arabic dictionary from Beida or Peking University. While the other figure who is perhaps one of the most eclectic 
uh, Arab thinkers of the 20th century and very unorthodox in his takes on Marxism uh, and other issues uh, is Hadi al-Alawi. Uh, you know, uh, he has sort of this very, what could almost say Taoist take on Marxism that I find very fascinating and very refreshing. And even his own sort of perspectives on China um, don't necessarily follow what you see elsewhere in terms of intellectual productions in the Arab world uh, on that place. Uh, other figures that I really also have found very interesting include Hanamina, uh, who I did not have an opportunity to really talk that much about in the, in the article, uh, but only because I've always found that in his stories, the protagonist is always depicted as, you know, this drunk, womanizing, uh, clueless and very disoriented communist, which is probably based on his own experiences in China. Uh, and he provides a very intimate image of the life of foreigners and particularly Arab foreigners uh, in pre-cultural revolutionary Maoist China, which is really fascinating to me. Um, there was also one figure that I actually did not touch upon in the article, but who actually had a very large place in it initially in the first draft. Uh, uh, and it's uh, Mahida, uh, who is uh, a Lebanese-American doctor who actually ended up going to Yan'an and uh, sort of lived in China for the rest of his life. Um, he was also a rather fascinating figure and in fact actually got uh, Chinese citizenship as well as uh, membership into the Communist Party of China. He was one of the few people who managed to do so. Why did you exclude him from your final draft? Well, the people who reviewed the article sort of said, well, he's he's more American <laughs> than he is Arab. Uh, I mean, he was raised in New York and whatnot, even though he is often mentioned and invoked as a person of interest in terms of Arab-Chinese cultural relations. Uh, but, you know, the problem is, is that we have to abide by very restrictive word counts for articles, as you know. <laughs> so. Yes. Um, it's also interesting you mentioned that because I had done some research before about uh, the perceptions of medical, um, medical healing. Uh, between kind of especially about acupuncture I've done like a field work about Turkish acupuncturists and I've read a bunch of stuff about how global like doctors from all over the world visited Yanan to learn like um, acupuncture and they all went back to their own countries talking about like what a wonderful and like most communist method of healing uh, acupuncture was because it's not reliant on um western biomedical kind of like technology is that something that this fellow said also just out of interest um, well mahida well his, his name is george hatton sorry i think mahida is the chinese name um he was a rather interesting fellow uh, if i recall his story he ended up coming into shanghai uh, in the very sort of early 19, 1930s, um, very impoverished, out, out on his luck. And he was tapped onto uh, by Song Qingling, uh, who was also sort of acting as uh, a, uh, a facilitator for contacts between the communists in the Northwest 
as well as many sort of circles, foreign or otherwise. Um, and she, they, there was a request in Yan'an for a foreign doctor. So George Hattam eventually went up to the Northwest uh, and he became one of those uh, privileged foreigners who were closely co-opted by the Communist Party um, for a very long time. And he's also sometimes attributed to having eradicated leprosy in China uh, and other things. But I mean, I am not in a position to really evaluate the veracity or truth of these claims, uh, but he's a very well-known figure. Um, but he did not actually, from my conversations with people who had met him or engaged with him or looking at his writings, which again is maybe part of the calculation as to why I didn't include him in the paper, really conceive or think of himself consciously as an Arab. Um, but again, regardless of his own thoughts on the subject, at least in the case of Lebanon, he is often referred to and invoked. And even in his like uh, hometown in Lebanon, uh, I forgot, I think it's in the Shouf Mountains, uh, they have like a large statue that had been endowed uh, by the Chinese embassy there to commemorate his contributions, etc. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is like uh, you both mentioned this and it's quite evident in the paper itself that you wrote uh, this paper, which essentially deals with deals with history with uh, with an eye on the contemporary situation. And how does that work methodologically? Because you are a political scientist uh, who is entering into a historian's territory and historians are kind of infamously anxious about making any kind of allegory with 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 the contemporary. And here you've been quite open, I think, about the fact that it is, in fact, the contemporary situation which is animating you to um, to research this history. And how did you balance this out? Yeah, I, I think from the very beginning in terms of my academic journey, I, I didn't necessarily position myself within any disciplinary field. So although I think given my interests, I sort of moved in directions where I do work on religious studies. Uh, sometimes methodologically, my work takes on ethnographic aspects. Sometimes it's very historically based and you know, uh, very much centered around texts and archives. Um, and I think deep down, maybe I'm more of a historian. So I've done a bit of work on, say, the Saudi Communist Party and the history of its evolution and development and demise, um, a bit of work on sort of sectarian conflict in Northwest China, and then of course this project. Um, now, I have to admit that in writing this paper, although I was hoping that it was not overt, but I think you have a very good sense of this, uh, I did sort of write it while reflecting on the current moment, because what we see is, uh, a lot of people in the Arab context, but even beyond the Arab context, sort of reproducing a lot of the intellectual pitfalls that their predecessors had fallen into when it comes to China. That is to say, there is this sort of uh, romanticized and even one could say very sort of positive orientalist take on the country and its politics that actually is very dehumanizing. And you can see that in terms of like the reflections uh, that people have in their travel logs and in their writings, right? There's sort of this 
valorization of the Chinese uh, peoples and individuals as, you know, uh, very collectivist, uh, very much oriented around realizing the dream of a liberated and socialist China. Um, and in many instances, it reaches to the point where people came with the belief that the Chinese were devoid of any sense of romantic life or sexual life. Like this is actually a trope that repeatedly appears in a lot of the writings of Arabs. Um, and so as a result, when you look cumulatively at a lot of the writings people had produced, whether people who came on short durations or people who stayed there for extended periods of time. And by the way, the people who stayed for extended periods of time, and this maybe relates to the earlier point I made about people not having many opportunities to engage with Chinese society and realities as much as that these people were also living very constrained uh, lives, right? Their, their lives were largely oriented around these foreign enclaves like uh, the Friendship Hotel, the Peace Hotel. Uh, their ability to travel beyond Beijing was heavily controlled. A lot of them did not speak Chinese at all. So it was very, very heavily controlled. Uh, so what you find is that a lot of their writings were quite superficial and typically followed or reproduced the narratives that they were receiving from their Chinese hosts in terms of how to understand contemporary Chinese history, how to ch understand Chinese society, which is uh, fine, but it only provides you a partial picture of uh, if you're trying to figure out what were some of the things that had happened in China that are salvageable and useful for alleviating your own sort of or addressing some of the issues you find in your own context. Um, the only person that I found to have been rather fascinating in his engagement with China uh, was really Hadi al-Alawi. And I think that's perhaps due to the fact that Hadi al-Alawi from the very beginning was always someone who did not subscribe to orthodox takes on um, politics uh, and ideology, right? I mean, uh, his, his fame uh, was primarily due to the fact that, for example, when he approached the critique of Arab culture and Arab tradition, and he's known as someone who, who much of his intellectual work is oriented around that, he did not necessarily subscribe to a fully Marxist view on the role of religion and spirituality, right? He, in fact, in a lot of his work, he tried to showcase that these were things that could be sources of strength for any leftist grassroots movement on the ground. And in fact, one of his key arguments, and it's something that he develops a lot more during his stay in China, and this is an interesting side note, he, he read most of the major classical works on Sufism in, during his time in Beijing. So this Al-Insan uh, Al-Kamil by Al-Ghazali and so forth, he does that all in the central library in Beijing, is that he sort of argues that non-Western societies like or civilizations like the Islamic and the Chinese are unique because um, these societies have always had communalistic tendencies. And he says that, well, this communalism comes from the fact that you sort of have this Asiatic mode of production that defined them, where we never see a full transition towards, you know, capitalism as in the West. But he also says that this communalism expressed itself and reproduced itself through uh, very unique spiritual traditions. So he argues that in the case of Islamic civilization, that Sufism, 
And in the case of Chinese civilization, it's Taoism. So he sees that these traditions are actually quite revolutionary in the sense that they're also sort of embodiments of this uh, ethos oriented towards serving the people and also fighting the clerisy and authority, right? So he has figures like Lao Tzu or Hallaj in mind. So I think it's, uh, he's very unique in the sense that he was also one of those uh, Arab intellectuals who said that, well, actually the success of the revolution in China is primarily because the Chinese did not subscribe to an imported Marxism, which was his sort of critique about the Arab leftist experience. And he said that, that the revolution in China succeeded because it had synthesized Marxism and had adapted it to local conditions, which is interestingly similar to what the Chinese state says today, but he differs in the sense that he says that it's a Marxism that's been Taoified, or it's a, a Taoism that's been Marxified in his own thinking, right? That it's China that subscribes to its sort of communalist roots. And um, he, as a result of all this view, he sort of breaks away from a lot of Ar other Arab intellectuals in that he's far more willing to criticize what he sees in the Chinese context. So we see that he has a very negative assessment of the Cultural Revolution. And he has a very complicated view of Mao uh, that is very distinct from his other peers. I mean, he actually has this very long debate with another Iraqi Maoist who was living with him in uh, Beijing. Uh, his name doesn't come to me as Samawi. Um, and it's very clear that a Samawi sort of represents really the, the reified mainstream view that you see across many Arab intellectuals, even across the intellectual spectrum, right? It's not just leftists who are repeating the state's narratives, but also people who would be positioned on the right or even in the center. So I think that's really what fascinated me the most about Hadi. And I think that he sort of represents a, a spirit of inquiry and uh, really a principled approach to thinking about the other uh, that is really worth emulating and reproducing. So his main argument basically in terms of like how Arab leftists should be inspired by China is that just like the Chinese communists have done, Arabs need to find a way of communism that's uniquely their own. Yes, so he, in a lot of his writings, he sort of emphasizes that one of the biggest downfalls of, uh, or sort of the, the biggest challenge that the Arab left had faced, whether in gaining popular traction or in realizing its goals, is that it has oftentimes abided by a translated communism. And this is actually true. If you think about, say, the mid 20th century experience of the Arab left and even beyond that period, uh, it always subscribed very closely to Soviet directives, right? And, uh, and sort of the Soviet orthodox form. So even like, for example, when the Sino-Soviet split happened, and I talk a bit about this in the paper, uh, the Arab communist parties largely all withdrew their cadres from China because you know they were just so ideologically, organizationally, uh, and even in terms of their visions oriented around the Soviet model, they could not conceive of uh, alternatives where they, they actually exercise 
exercise their own autonomy. I think to some extent, maybe uh, Hadi al-Alawi was also influenced by the experience of the Iraqi Communist Party, which in the 1940s sort of adopted that type of independent line and had you know, gained a lot of popularity and advanced uh, and penetrated very deeply Iraqi society. But of course, that was nipped into the bud for other political reasons. Um, but I think his key point is that people should reject uh, imported models, Soviet, Cuban, Vietnamese, Chinese. I mean, he mentions all of these. And he says they need to think about uh, socialism with reference to their own cultural and social conditions. And he says that, you know, the legacies and traditions that we have inherited, they can be great sources of revolution. I think that was one of his key points um, that is really worth taking into heart. And what's interesting also about Hadi al-Alawi is that he is not someone who would, you know, present himself as a pan-Arabist or as an Arab nationalist. And he says that these are legacies that are salvageable and useful, but you know, one should not necessarily uh, treat them as essentialist or eternal uh, resources to draw upon with sort of eternal truths underpinning them. So for example, he was one of the few Iraqi intellectuals who uh, promoted and supported the idea of a free Kurdistan. Which again gained him a lot of enemies in different circles, but it was based on his sort of principled approach to uh, the role of the intellectual. And I think you know, I'm sorry, maybe I'm going on and on about him, but I find him such a no. Actually, figure. you're pretty much almost like uh, you've pretty much answered the question that I was just about to ask. Please okay. go on. Uh, I mean, he. I find him also very fascinating because. He's the type of intellectual who believes that you need to practice what you say and what you write. So he believes that, for example, a, 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 a socialist intellectual is someone who has to live in the manner of the people. So throughout his life, he imposed the type of ascetic monkish-like existence on himself. Like the people who knew him knew that he didn't eat meat, for instance. Uh, he lived in complete poverty. He refused to um, have his pen be bought because at the time in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, a lot of intellectuals were criticized, for example, for writing in outlets uh, that were funded by Gulf Oil or by the Iraqi government or by any other outlets. He refused to participate in any of that. Um, and as a result, he lived a very sort of humble lifestyle for much of his life that was really a testament to his own beliefs. And even later in his life, he tried to promote a lot of communalistic projects that were oriented around you know, providing assistance for the poor, particularly in the countryside in Damascus where he lived. Um, trying to provide support for the poor in Iraq under the, the sanctions that had imposed in the 1990s. So he is someone that really deserves a lot of scrutiny and study, I think. And it's very unfortunate that he is largely unknown in the Anglophone literature, even though his writings, you know, uh, uh, thankfully in, in the last decade or so, have gained newfound popularity in the Arab world, like his whole corpus of writings have been republished as a result of the efforts of his wife. Um, so yeah, he's he's really one of those universal intellectuals, al-mufakkir al-kawni, which is a phrase that he also likes to use uh, in the sense that he talks about 
these uh, intellectuals who represent this communalistic ethos uh, of giving and care and focus on the poor. And he situates a lot of figures under that rubric, including people like Laozi, Halaj, um, uh, the Arab free thinker. Well, Marx, I believe, was on his, uh, yeah. Yes, uh, he, he situates Marx under it, uh, even though he says that, well, you know, his communalism is really because uh, he's Jewish. And so therefore he is part of Eastern Islamic civilization. So because he thinks that, you know, this is one of the unfortunate aspects of his thought is that he has a very essentialized view of the West as the source of all evil. So while he has this very humanistic take on sort of the non-Western world, uh, he, he sees the West and primarily the United States as uh, an evil that can never really be absolved of its past sins. You know? But generally speaking, there is always this potential in his, his thought of the universal. Uh, that I think is really worth paying a lot of attention to. And I think it's maybe the next step is to really translate more of his work, at least on my part, down the line, uh, and maybe even others who are interested in doing so, to introduce him to you know, a larger audience, which I think he deserves. I'm quite interested in uh, when we we're talking earlier about his idea of well, for one thing, just in appearances, I find from what you've described that he's got like an almost orientalist approach to the specific ways that a modern ideology like communism communism has risen in different places. Like he associates, like you said, um, Karl Marx's own communitarian communism to like an atavistic notion of uh, Jewish identity, which is inherited through like thousands of years. He is attributing uh, Taoism, I mean, communism in China to, again, it's kind of like mystical tradition of Taoism, which is transformed into something. There's there's almost like an orientalistic element of, you know, when orientalists describe the Middle East, they talk about like Shias and Sunnis, they have been in conflicts for like thousands of years, like in every single conflict that's going to happen in the Middle East is going to be somehow related to uh this fundamental sectarian conflict that's kind of like predates the middle ages but what i'm interested also like on one hand he is kind of pushing in that direction and i'm curious as to uh whether his approach to uh, arab communisms is excluding the possibility that these local versions of communism could be authentic because they're too modern. Like, I don't know, like when I'm thinking, for example, about the Ba'ath parties in uh, in the Arab world, I mean, they're supposed to be kind of like a mixture of uh, communism and Arab nationalism. And does a figure like Alawi consider this Arab nationalism component to be too modern to be able to qualify as a genuinely authentic version of um, a local manifestation of communism, or um, or does he view Baathism as inauthentic communism for some other reason? I think he is very hostile, generally, to the projects of nationalism, um, in whatever form they appear. Um, 
and even sort of his attempts to excavate the Arab traditional corpus, right? It's not just about, oh, saying, well, there are these socialists or communalistic values inherent to say, uh, Islamic religious traditions. He actually also turns to figures that have been long identified as being hostile to religion, right? Or, or are figures that have often been uh, big question marks in sort of the Arab intellectual tradition. People like, for example, um, Abu al-Ala al-Marri, who's a 10th century Arab free thinker, who was, you know, I mean, there's a debate about whether he was a Muslim or he was a deist, uh, but generally very hostile to a lot of sort of the, what we could say ritualized Islam. Uh, so he was pointing to such figures uh, and sort of the, their values and their, uh, you know, avataric lifestyles as things that can potentially be harnessed for the project of realizing a humanistic presence. I think, you know, Hadi al-Alawi, does not like to think of, or has never really thought of his project, at least that's the feeling I got from his writings, as sort of a Chinese or an Arab project. He always thought of it in terms of the universal or moving towards a universal endpoint for mankind as a whole. And he saw that at least in the Chinese and Islamic contexts, broadly speaking, um, there were already a lot of local traditions that carried the potential of realizing that humanistic endpoint. In fact, if there was to be any hope about the future, it would be from these areas of the world and not say from the West, which on the one hand, and again, this is going back to the point you raised correctly, that he has this sort of vision, a very atavistic, centralizing vision of sort of, you know, the West, which is uh, weighed down by its Greco-Roman past. And you know, with all of its problems compounded by capitalism as such. Um, so he sees really the salvation can only come from the East <laughs> to put it in a different way. And that's basically like China's slogan in itself, right? Especially during yeah. the uh, communist revolution. Yeah, yes and no, <laughs> but that's a very typical response. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, what kind of research do you plan to do in the future after this, like, working on building on this uh, work? Um, so, I mean, my research is taking me in different directions. Uh, I sort of have a uh, paper that I'm working on, which relates to... Uh, sort of some of the intellectual exchanges between the two regions. So I'm looking at, for example, the narrative that emerged in the late 19th century among European circles about China's imminent Islamization. Uh, so there was this moral panic across European observers during the time when the Qing was beleaguered by a lot of different rebellions, uh, that China was about to become a Muslim nation or a Muslim kingdom. So uh, I was interested in sort of tracing the evolution of this discourse and then sort of how it migrated from the European discursive universe into the Ottoman and Arabic ones, right? And how it mutated and evolved. Is this a fringe view? Is this in the mainstream? The, the first major texts on Islam in China as such by people like say, uh, uh, Vassiliev, who's a Russian Orientalist, or uh, de Thiersant, a French diplomat and Orientalist, 
all debated in the 1870s from a perspective that it was a given that China would become a Muslim state. Uh, so I'm sort of, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun, interesting, uh, weird dis- <laughs> side discussion that happened. And it sort of gave rise to a lot of these ideas that have persisted throughout the 20th century, that China had a large Muslim demographic presence. And it's something you see even up till now. So like I encounter uh, Abdel Nasser in his philosophy of revolution, the, the figure of 50 million Muslims in China, you see Islamist authors talking about the 70, 80 million Muslims in China in the 70s and 80s. And even today, when people express skepticism about sort of the Chinese figures about Muslims, they're actually hearkening back to this old legacy. Um, so it's kind of like that's one project that I'm looking at, which is kind of fun. The other one is uh, I'm helping organize a workshop that sort of um, is trying to look at Cold War inter-Asian connectivities with a focus on the sort of the broader Middle East or West, Southwest Asia, and its ties with Asia as a whole. Um, so in that, under the rubric of that project, I'm sort of looking at Saudi Arabia's involvement in East Asia's Cold War, particularly with the frontline anti-communist states. So I'm sort of moving away from looking at revolutionary linkages to looking at counter-revolutionary linkages. And I'm trying to sort of rethink some of the assumptions about sort of Saudi's engagement with that theater, because I'm sort of also looking at the writings of a lot of Saudi officials who got very heavily involved in a lot of these anti-communist networks, like the Asian People's Anti-Communist League or the World Anti-Communist League, and we're attending conferences in Taipei, Seoul, Saigon, uh, and looking at a lot of like archival material that is, you know, going sort of against a lot of the assumptions we have about how Saudi operates in terms of its uh, foreign policy under the, the King Faisal's period, right? Um, and then the last project, which is more of a book project that I'm initiating and collecting data on. Wait, you can also and, clarify what kind of assumptions and uh, how oh, they go against it. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm, I'm a bit all over the place. Uh, it's more the sort of the view of Saudi as, uh, in a reductive way, as just an extension of uh, sort of American foreign policy and maneuvering. Um, because what we can clearly see is that there is a lot of interesting agency that's happening, a lot of pushback on the things that the US wanted Saudi to do in the East Asian theater. Like for example, um, the, the US after their withdrawal from Southern Vietnam, or in the process of sort of their withdrawal, they were trying to uh, provide financial assistance to the beleaguered regime in Saigon. And so one of the proposals was to actually bring in Saudi Arabia to provide financial support around 300 million US dollars. Uh, and actually relations between South Vietnam and Saudi were actually normalized quite late, I think around 1974. I interviewed a couple of Saudi officials and reading sort of the material, it was very clear that they already had assessed that South Vietnam was on the verge of collapse and that it was not something that they were necessarily interested in committing to. But even sort of the depth of their relationship with Taiwan, with South Korea, even sort of in the face of US policy in which it was moving towards normalizing relationships with the People's Republic, uh, really is very interesting. It sort of goes against 
some of sort of, I think, the, the tired assumptions that people have about, you know, how Saudis conduct their foreign policy and how they've engaged uh, with many parts of the world, right? Even sort of the interesting overlap between ostensibly secular anti-communist but right-wing circles and networks uh, with Islamist ones, right? And actually what's quite fascinating is that we find uh, a outsized and rather unexpected Turkish involvement <laughs> in sort of bringing in these two networks together. Um, I mean, Turkey was involved in the Korean War right from the get-go. From the get-go, and it was actually one of also the very close allies of Taiwan. Uh, I would say in the broader Muslim world, it was probably uh, Pakistan for a short while, Iran for a short while, but Turkey, Jordan, and uh, Lebanon, as well as Saudi as a later entrant into that, were all very closely involved uh, with sort of that anti-communist circle that was centered around Taiwan itself. And your final project? Uh, the final project is uh, a book. I'm still in sort of the process of um, gathering data for, um, but it sort of builds up on some of my past research on uh, modernist religious movements in Northwest China, like the Salafiya movement, as well as more recently sort of certain currents of the Juan, where I'm trying to look at the question of sectarianism. Uh, in Northwest China among its Muslim communities. So I'm sort of looking at two or three uh, sort of dimensions related to that broader theme. The first is sort of why is the Northwest so unique in comparison to other parts of China with respect to its Muslim communities? Because we see a very reified uh, and very strong sectarian identity among the Muslim communities there, even though all of them are generally Sunnis. In fact, all of them are Sunnis who, for the most part, theologically are Maturidi and Hanafi in terms of their legal school affiliation. But uh, they have sort of these very fixed categories about their religious affiliation, you know, Qadim, uh, Sufi Benquan or Sufi orders and Tariqas, Ikhwan, Salafiya, Shidautang. And the question really is, you know, how did these identities evolve over the course of the last century, right? And why did they evolve? You know, what makes the, the Northwest particularly unique that we don't see this re-emerging in contexts or as pronouncedly so in contexts like Yunnan or Central China or Northern China, Northeast China, that is. And sort of the second dimension that I'm interested in is how has the Chinese state engaged with the sectarian question in the Northwest? So um, I'm trying to gather material from archives that thinks about, well, how has the state made its Muslim communities legible? So I, you know, I found reports with people who are involved in land reform, cadres who are involved with religious work in the 50s and 60s, really trying to figure out how to categorize Muslims. So they come up with all these really weird categories, you know, Xinjiao, Xin Xinjiao, Xin Xin Xinjiao, the new movement, the new, new movement, new, 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 new movement, you know. And then it's like sort of wondering, well, how did we end up with the current categorization of sects, which is something that the state also reproduces and showcases in the websites for its bureaucracies that are engaged with managing religious work and ethnic work in China. 
Um, so it's like thinking about, well, the evolution of these discourses and sort of what are the strategies and tools that the state has used to govern its, uh, the sectari its sectarianized populations. And then the last dimension, which might I might include or not, sort of thinks about the, how China has been incorporated into global Muslim sectarian imaginaries. Uh, so, you know, I, I did work many, many years ago on the rise of Chinese-focused missionary organizations in the Gulf. And uh, one of the things that catalyzed or led to the emergence of these missionary groups was the perception that uh, there was a growth of Shi'i activity in China funded by Iran and other groups, right? So uh, I found reports by Saudi officials from 2011 saying, oh, you know, the Shiites have made a lot of inroads in China. They had 7 million converts and nonsense like that. And there was, of course, a lot of audiovisual material at the time that was being produced uh, of, you know, like Chinese workers in uh, a campsite in Iraq saying, yeah, Ali, or uh, like the, uh, <laughs> a Chinese businessman from Zhejiang who had funded like a Ashura procession in Iraq or something like that. And people would use these as indicators of the successful um, entrance of Shiism in the Chinese context. So it's like sort of also exploring and thinking about the sectarian phenomenon from a globalized context where a lot of these different contending sectarian actors were incorporating China into their fantasies of sect. And then using sort of all these three dimensions in the book to question and think about sectarianism and whether it's a useful paradigm in thinking about the religious scene among Muslims in the Northwest and even just more globally. It sounds like the final component of this research kind of ties in neatly with the first research project that you've described about like fantasizing about China turning into a Muslim country. When you said that, you know, 7 billion Shias in China. I mean, I've I've dabbled in the literature written by um, Christian missionaries in China in 19th century. And the one thing that they keep saying over and over is the impossibility of converting the Chinese into any kind of religion at all. And these kind of discourses on China suddenly turning Muslim almost runs against um, the, the common wisdom that's already been experienced there. Well, I mean, the, the, the funny thing is that all of these conversations are connected with one another. So the, the Christian missionaries, right, they adopt a lot of these perceptions of a strong Muslim presence on the ground, that even China, European diplomats at the turn of the century. So, for example, uh, during the Boxer Rebellion, uh, there was a perception among foreign observers that the Muslims were very heavily involved in the rebellion. In fact, you know, the general Dong Fuxiang, who was leading Muslim troops and besieging the Beijing legations, was thought of as being Muslim. He was not. And in fact, his relatives, when they spoke to like uh, people who interviewed them 10, 20 years later, would always insist that we're not Muslims at all. Uh, there was such a strong perception that the, the German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, asked Abdul Hamid to send a mission to China to placate the Muslims there. Right? And so these views continued and affected how a lot of the Christian missions thought about their role in China. So they eventually sort of reached the conclusion with the writings of people like Marshall Broomhall, for example, uh, 
um, that, oh, the Muslims aren't actually as numerous and not as powerful as we thought. And in fact, um, the Muslims are demoralized. They may have been able to take over China perhaps 30, 40 years ago, but Islam's opportunity has passed. And in fact, before, because also the, the pan-Islamic forces have not developed sufficient ties with local Muslims, this is an opportunity for us to focus on Chinese Muslims specifically as an entry point into converting all of China because they are seen as fellow monotheists. They are open to an Abrahamic conception of the world. So you find that organizations like the China Inland Mission, they put a lot of resources into producing literature directed at Chinese Muslims. Um, and I think a lot of the contemporary missionary activity among Muslims towards China, or at least what was the case a decade ago, I think the situation has changed in the past few years. A lot of it was also drawing on literature about the Christianization of China. So it's kind of interesting. The early Christians were animated by fears about Chinese Islamization, while contemporary Muslims in some ways are animated by fears of Chinese Christianization. So they talk about all the inroads made by Christian missions and that there needs to be a more active Muslim role so that this big demographic prize, such as China, is not taken over by Christianity. Yeah, it's basically when you're racing with somebody, you always want to over-exaggerate the gains your opponent has made so you can convince everybody else to invest in your project right now. Yeah. Well, I think we have come to the end of our conversation. Is there anything else you want to add? That's about it. I think I've uh, taken a lot of time. No, anyway. it's been a great pleasure. <laughs> and uh, thanks so much for talking to us and really looking forward to your future projects. Yeah, thank you for having me. And, uh, looking forward to cooperating even further with Mangal. <laughs>